We've already been worshiping the Lord this morning. We come to the high point when we open God's word, when I expound it, when you hear God's word, and when we apply it through the Spirit's work to our hearts, to our minds. We've been working our way through the gospel according to Paul in Romans. It is Paul's opening up of the gospel. We typically think of the gospel as the few points that he gave, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus came, he died on the cross for sinners according to the scriptures, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised again according to the scriptures. And indeed, that is a nutshell of the gospel. Without those, a person cannot be saved. And yet, Paul spends 16 chapters in Romans here opening up the gospel, fleshing out all the things that we should know to live a godly life, things that we should believe, teachings and commandments, as we'll see near the end of Romans, that we are to live by. We're now at this high point in chapter 8. We got to the place where Paul speaks of God being sovereign over all things. That he's so sovereign over all things and every atom that moves or that stays still in the universe that he can make sure all things turn out for good for those who love God. The same folks that he called according to his purpose. And we went into Romans 9. And if you look at Romans 9, 1, we see that Paul is starting this section, Romans 9 through 11, as a section about Israel and God's dealings with Israel. He says he's telling the truth in Christ. And he gets down to verse 6, right to the point. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And what Paul is going to do the rest of chapter 9. Before he goes into 10. Which is a proclamation of the gospel to the Jews. And a command to believe. In chapter 9 though. He's going to talk. And he has been already as we've looked at this. About God's choice in salvation. That not every physical descendant of Abraham is going to be saved. And the reason why is because of God's choice. I want to read the passage that I'm going to be preaching on today. It's Romans 9, 14 through 18. I've entitled the message, Is God's Sovereign Election Fair? But let's start reading in verse 10 to get the context. Why does this question even come up here in Paul's letter? Where does this question come from? And if you're like most Christians, you'll understand where this question comes from. But let's get the context here. Romans 9, starting in verse 10. Let's read. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It is said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, It does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then 
he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. As I told you in Romans 9 through 13, which we took a few messages to go through that portion of Scripture, this is about God's choosing whom he will choose for salvation. This is about the doctrine called election. God's unconditional election. It's not conditioned on anything that we would do. It's not conditioned on our merits. It's not conditioned on our choice. It is all about God's purpose and God's will being fulfilled. Election, if we were to define it, and I've told you this definition, God the Father chose to put his special electing love on some before the creation of all things. God's plan in eternity past to save sinners. That is the doctrine of election. And what has brought this discussion up is not some cold, dusty seminary discussion that Paul's having with a fellow seminarian. No, it's the real issue here of why hasn't God saved all of Israel? Why hasn't God, at the time Paul writes, and we could say today, why isn't every Israelite saved? We could also say, why isn't everybody saved, period? And so Paul now goes into his argument here, and he's arguing that God makes a choice. If we were to back up even to verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed, but through Isaac your seed will be named, not through Ishmael. And then he says it's Jacob, not Esau. It's God's choice. Paul says, indeed, God has chosen And he has never said that he would save every single Israelite or every single person. He's never promised that in Scripture. Now, there will be a time that all Israel is saved. We'll get to that in Romans 11. And we have to ask the question of when that is going to happen. But for right now, Paul's just arguing this is completely according to God's sovereignty. He is faithful. He has never, ever done anything that is unrighteous or wrong. He's never stopped keeping his promises, not been faithful. And so the kind of election that Paul's talking about here, it's not an election of nations. Yes, God chose Israel in the Old Testament to be a special nation so that they would sacrifice to him. They would follow him. They would love him. They would be a light on the hill that would attract the nations. And yet they did not do that. They turned away. God punished them, but he still has a remnant. He still has a remnant within Israel and a remnant, you could say, within all humanity. But here the context is Israel. And God not only chooses some, but he rejects others. That's why he said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. From the Old Testament, Paul brings that quote before us to show us it's God's choice. And so he not only chooses some, but has in effect rejected those he does not choose. We could call this non-election. We could call this rejection, as I mentioned. We could call this, as the theologians do, the doctrine of reprobation. That God, passing over them, leaves them in their fallen sinful state, and they continue to be hardened. The eternal decree of God is what we're looking at here. Where God chose those he would save, and of course, we know that means he chose not to save others. Now, the teaching of Scripture here sometimes is difficult as I mentioned, to accept. Sometimes this seems hard for us to hear, but it is the teaching, election, and and this teaching of reprobation that has been taught from the early church. Now we see it here in Paul. 
I'll make that case that it's, it's very clear what Paul is saying here. It's just hard sometimes for the modern man and people throughout church history even to accept. But this goes way back to the days of even Augustine in the early church. He taught about election. In fact, it was his writings on election that people today even look back to to get more clarity and to understand how to put this doctrine together in Scripture. Also, Thomas Aquinas, which is a surprise to some of us, the the great theologian of the medieval period, taught unconditional election. But over time, the Roman Catholic Church focused more on merit. They focused more on works. It was more of a conditional election. You earned God's salvation. You mixed your faith with works. And so the reformers brought this teaching back up and they put it right in the forefront. And they said, by grace alone, we're saved. By God's grace alone. And so you have Martin Luther teaching unconditional election. And the theologian of the Reformation, John Calvin, teaching election during the Reformation. Sometimes Calvin is supposed to be the guy who invented this. But all Calvin was doing is going back to Augustine. And all Augustine was doing was going back to Paul. And all Paul was doing is going back to Jesus. This continues throughout church history. In fact, John Knox of Scotland, the mighty Puritans of England and the American colonies. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian and scholar of America. The Princeton theologian, Charles Hodge. Charles Spurgeon, the most evangelistic pastor that you're probably ever going to read about in church history, other than Jesus and Paul. Charles Spurgeon taught on election to thousands of people and many others throughout church history. In fact, It is not wrong to say the first hundred years of the American colonies, all the churches, all the Christians heard about election and they were taught it in the church and they believed it. Whether you were Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, it did not matter. This was believed by early Americans. But at some point, that changed. At some point, the church decidedly said in America, we are not going to teach on this anymore, even though it's right here in Scripture. And that's one of the main arguments, by the way, for doing expository preaching, passage by passage, verse by verse through Scripture. We don't get to skip this. We don't get to say, well, we're not Israel today, so we'll just skip chapters 9, 10, and 11 and move on to chapter 12. No, we're still going to go through it and see what the Word of God has to say, because when he wrote this to the Romans, you know who it was to? Jews and Gentiles that were saved in the church in Rome. Now, as you can imagine, not everyone has always been a huge fan of this teaching in church history. Early on, you had some church fathers say, specifically this passage that we're going to look at today, this passage is hard to believe that Paul even wrote it. And some early church fathers said, someone must have snuck in this paragraph other than Paul. Later, a man named Pelagius, a heretic really, would translate 9.15, Romans 9 verse 15, as saying, I will have mercy on the one whom I foreknow will deserve mercy to that I already have had mercy on him. And that's why Augustine wrote so much about this doctrine. Not because he just wanted to talk about election all the time, but because Pelagius was out there spreading this, if you deserve it, God will give it to you idea. Later, Jacob Arminius, after the Reformation, he studied under Calvin's school in Geneva, but he eventually rejected this doctrine when he learned about it and thought about it. And he said, eternal life cannot be denied to some men except on account of their foreseen disobedience. In other words, Arminius said, look, this idea of election in the Bible, I don't agree with it. And he said, God looks forward in time. That's where this 
looking down the corridors of time really got traction. He said, God looked forward in time and saw what the person would believe and then backed up and eternity passed and chose people before the foundation of the world. John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement, he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. This man was saved, but he hated the doctrine of unconditional election. He said it made God worse than the devil. And he said that predestination was poison and a blasphemy. And at some point, we saw in America the spreading of what's called the free will church movement. And during the Second Great Awakening, it was easier, some people thought, to get people to come forward, to say a prayer, to come to the bench, to make a decision, and to take God's election and all that God's calling out of the preaching. And that's where we're at today. Many of us went to churches when we were first saved or grew up in churches that never touched on this. I never heard of it. I told you this story a couple of weeks ago that the first time I heard this was R.C. Sproul scratching on the chalkboard on the radio and didn't even understand what I was hearing for many more years after that. But objections do come up and that's not something new. Objections to election, objections to God's reprobation, they're not new objections. Paul knew these objections were out there. You could say God, of course, knew these objections would come. Because the heart of man is the same today as it once was. When people hear this, they push back against it. There's something about us that makes us not want to hear this kind of teaching about God. That's what we see here in Romans 9, starting in verse 14. Paul has brought forth this doctrine, this doctrine of election where God loved Jacob and rejection where it says God hated Esau. And so the first objection that's going to come up is that's not fair. That's not fair, Paul. If your teaching is true, that makes God unfair. And then the second objection, which we'll look at Lord willing next week, is that this impinges on our free will. Or we would say today, this makes us like robots. So in verse 19, he's going to pick up that question where he says, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? That's speaking of free will. So that's next week. Today, it's not fair. And so we have to ask the question, is it fair? Where is this objection coming from? Two main points here in this passage. First of all, let's just look at the objection to God's sovereignty and election. You'll see right away what the question is here. What shall we say then? How do we make sense of this, Paul says? How do we summarize what he's just taught us about Jacob and Esau? How shall we respond? As he's asking us to think here, what shall we say about all this? How shall we put this together? He realizes that all of us at some point in our lives are not going to like this doctrine. He realizes that his Jewish Christian readers, maybe his Gentile Christian readers, and any unbelievers who are hearing this letter read in the Roman church or come across it later, they're going to have objections. They're going to put this together the wrong way. They're going to think wrongly about God. And so he just comes out with the question, is there any unrighteousness with God? That's the objection. Is there any unrighteousness with God? The word for unrighteousness, adikia, it's the opposite of righteousness with the alpha on the front of it. It means without righteousness. Adikia is the quality of injustice, unrighteousness, wickedness, injustice for God. Is God not just? Is there something wrong with God? How could he choose one over the other and not be based on merit? 
How is it fair? This is what the, especially the Jew who knows his Old Testament really well and is reading this. How is it fair that God chose Isaac over Ishmael? They're both sinners, aren't they? Paul, didn't you talk about in Romans 3 how everyone is a sinner and they're none righteous? How can he choose Isaac over Ishmael when they're both sinners? How can he choose Jacob over Esau when they both deserve eternal punishment? Or some might say, how can God not look at all the good that one person has done and not choose that person based on the good that they have done or will do or the great accomplishments that they'll make for God? The issue here is that man wants to judge God based on his standards, man's standards, our standards. Man wants to say, God, this doesn't fit the way I think about the world. So maybe God's unfair is what man tends to think. In man's confusion about the sinfulness of mankind, he thinks everyone deserves heaven and no one deserves hell. Have you ever met that person who talks with you? Didn't God create us? Didn't God love us? Doesn't God want everybody to go to heaven? Doesn't God want everybody to be saved? Aren't we all good by nature? That's where it starts. Aren't we all good when we're born? Isn't that cute little baby who comes out of mama just so good and wonderful? And it's only later that they learn to sin? No, Paul says that he's been working on this for many chapters in Romans. We're all born sinners. And we start acting on that sinful nature as soon as we can. And on top of that, in Romans 5 and 6, he says, Look, we have on our account imputed to us Adam's sin because he represented all of humanity. But we tend to judge God by our standards. Paul thinks that anyone who understands what he's teaching here might accuse God of being unfair. And that's ludicrous. When it comes down to it, to think that God would be unjust is ludicrous. Here, here's James Montgomery Boyce. He says, ever since the fall, human beings have been trying to blame God for his actions. Or which is almost the same thing, to call him to account. Adam did it in the Garden of Eden saying, it's the woman you put here with me. It's the woman that you put here with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's not my fault, God. My kids do this all the time, right? It's not my fault. I mean, my hand just happened to go too far and hit my brother. It was an accident. They learned from a young age because we're all descended from Adam who blamed his wife for his sin when God showed up. John Calvin said, The flesh cannot hear of this wisdom of God without being instantly disturbed by numberless questions and without attempting in a manner to call God to an account. When men hear anything of what Scripture teaches respecting predestination, they're especially entangled with very man impediments. It is indeed, as the flesh imagines, a kind of injustice, man says, that God should pass by one and show regard to another. And yet, we know what Scripture tells us about God. We know as Christians that God is perfect, that God cannot lie. That God cannot be unfair, unjust. This is a serious claim against God. This is a serious objection. To say that God is unfair is to say that he's unjust, unrighteous, and essentially is to say God is sinful. Because that's what unrighteousness is. It's sin. It's sin not to be just. It's sin not to be 
righteous. Paul already dealt with this back in Romans 3 on another aspect. Go to Romans 3 with me. And he has a similar response there. He, he says, absolutely no way possible. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. Romans 3.3. 3, what then? Again, this question. Think about what he just said. What are we going to make of this? What then? If some did not believe, talking about the Jews, does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God? May it never be. Rather, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is the God who inflicts wrath unrighteous? I'm speaking in human terms. And he goes on to make his argument there. So he's already brought this up. This idea that God could be unfaithful, unrighteous, untrue. Absolutely not. God could never be that. So let's look at how Paul now explains this. He denies, Paul does, and the rest of this passage of any unrighteousness in God. 14, the rest of 14 through 18 is the denial of any unrighteousness in God. And we need to follow his argument closely here. We need to ask when he quotes these Old Testament verses, why he's doing what he's doing. So first of all, he just absolutely rejects it. One of his favorite ways to do that is saying, may it never be. It's not possible. God forbid is how the King James translated that. May geneto in Greek. May it never be. It's never, ever, ever, ever possible that God could be unrighteous. That God could be unfair. That God could be sinful. May it never be. Don't even say that is the idea. He's not going to tolerate. Paul's not going to tolerate such a sinful conclusion about God. In other words, he's saying, don't take what I said here and twist it. Don't take what I said here and start thinking that that makes God unfair. May it never be. He just says, throw it out immediately. That's not the case. And yet, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only rejects such an accusation, but he's now going to use it as an opportunity to teach us. May it never ever be, don't even think about it. Now let me show you the right way to think about God. That's what he's doing in the rest of this passage. So the denial, straight up, is may it never be. And then starting in verse 15, he's going to explain to us why it could never be. First of all, look, he says, essentially, because mercy is a perfection of God and brings him glory. It could never be possible that God would be unjust in choosing one over the other. Because God himself is merciful. Because an attribute, a perfection of God is mercy. And Paul just starts off by quoting from the Old Testament here. He's going to make his case from the Bible, as we all should. He says, for he says to Moses. God says to Moses. Paul's appealing to the Jewish understanding of Moses being righteous. Moses is the lawgiver. Of all people, before Christ, Moses was the great prophet. Certainly, he's saying you should listen to Moses. You call yourself a Jew, you'll listen to Moses, won't you? So he's stressing this freedom of God to show mercy through quoting here from Exodus thirty-three nineteen. Here's the quote. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, and we're going to go there so you can start getting ready. I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomsoever I have compassion. That's my translation. The LSB just says on whom. 
That's fine. That just makes us think about individuals. But of all the mass of humanity, God can choose whoever he wants out of that. Now, mercy and compassion are two very similar words. If you look up the definitions in Greek or English or Hebrew, they're very similar. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish. So God should punish the sinner, but he shows them mercy. He shows them mercy. And then compassion is pity or concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. And so we're going to see in Exodus 33 that really mercy is pointing more at God's grace and compassion, this idea of having pity or concern for the lowly, for the suffering, for the misfortunes. But again, there's a lot of overlap as there often is in these attributes of God. So why did Paul, or you can say, why did Paul inspire by God? Why did he choose Exodus 33, 19? There's a lot of verses that talk about God's loving kindness, God's mercy. Why did he go to Exodus 33, 19. Let's go to Exodus 33. And I want to set the context here for you. The context is that Moses has gone up to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And Israel builds a golden calf. Because they're tired of waiting on Moses. And there's thunder and there's lightning. And this God is scary. Build us a God, Aaron. Build us a God, Aaron, the high priest, that we can worship right here in front of us. And they called that golden calf Yahweh. They called it their God. The God that brought us out of Egypt. You see, that's what happens when we don't like God's awesome holiness. Or we don't like election. Or we don't like these other doctrines taught about God in the Bible. We start to create a God of our own making. And that's what they did. And then Moses comes down. He's very upset. Remember, he throws the commandments down. He grinds up the golden calf. He, He makes them drink it and so on. And then he intercedes for Israel. He, he begs God not to crush them. Look at chapter 32, verse 30. Now it happened on the next day that Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, but now I'm going up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made gods of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, But if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. He's interceding for them. He's saying, wipe me out first. And and Yahweh said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But, and here's the mercy, but now go, guide the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then Yahweh smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. So there's the context. We move now into Exodus 33. Look at verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go up, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, saying, To your seed I will give it. So Moses, lead the people through the wilderness and go to the promised land. And he says, I'm going to send my angel before you, the angel of of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe. He says, I'm going to send my angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you are stiff-necked people, lest I consume you on the way. Then the people heard this sad word and they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. 
So they heard that Yahweh himself was not going to go. That God the Father was not going to go with them. So they, they mourned. We're not going to put on our jewelry. We're going to mope around. Verse 5. So Yahweh said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would consume you. So now put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. So a little comment here in verse 6. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments and from Mount Horeb onward. They didn't put a jewelry on again during this trip. In verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it happened whenever Moses went out to the tent, then all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent. And they would gaze after Moses. So Moses is meeting with God. He's hearing from God. And it happened in verse 9. Whenever Moses entered the tent, that the pillar of cloud would descend. So God is coming down to meet with him. And it stand at the entrance of the tent. And Yahweh would speak with Moses. Now skip to verse 12. Then Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you yourself had not let me know whom you will send with me. Moses was always wanting a little help. He never felt like even with God's power, he could do it. So who are you going to send with me? How are you going to help me, God? And he says, moreover, you have said, I have known you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. So Moses says, I I pray you, if I find favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. See also that this nation is your people. So he's begging God's help. He's, he's begging God's wisdom and understanding. And he said, this is God. My presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. So Moses intercede. God is going to go with them. Verse 15, then he said to him, Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Rightly so. Who wants to go into this world with everybody attacking the believer in God without God's presence? Moses just says, if you're not going, I'm not going. We're not going. Indeed, how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? He wants an affirmation here. He wants God to confirm his word. Is it not by your going with us so that we and I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Then Yahweh said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight. Favor is another word for grace. You've found God's grace. God's going to give Moses and Israel grace. And I have known you by name. So he has a personal, intimate, saving relationship, you could say, with Moses. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. So we're right up to the quote that Paul draws from here in verse 19. But notice... Show me your glory. That's what Moses asked. Confirm to me, and the greatest way Moses could think of, confirm to me, he says, that you'll be with us. Let me see a glimpse of your glory. Let me see you, O Lord. And here we are in verse 19. And he said, this is Yahweh. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. All my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. So he says he's going to pass before Moses. His name is going to be proclaimed. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. You see, Paul's not quoting this to say, 
Well, God did this in the past. He made a choice when he chose Israel, when he was gracious to Moses, when he was gracious to Israel. So that's all he's doing now in, in Romans 9. That's, he's just acting the way that he acts. Well, that's true. God doesn't change. But Paul's saying something more than that by quoting this verse. Because look again at the text in verse 19. This speaks of who God is. And it's a part of the revelation of his name. He's going to show his glory. What is his glory? His glory is this bright shining greatness. His glory is in his name. And his glory is in who he is. And who is he? He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of compassion. This is a statement about God's nature, about God's name, about God's glory. God can't be unrighteous because of who he is. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. These are his perfections, his, his attributes. They're, they're, they're tied closely to his name. Not just the God that shows mercy, but a God whose attribute is mercy. Not just a God who shows grace, but grace is an attribute of who he is. God is gracious. And he gets to decide who he's going to show that to. He has the sovereign freedom as God to decide on whom he will display his grace and his mercy. It's up to him. He goes on. Look at chapter 34 here. Again, tying this to his name. 34, 5. Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses again here. And he called upon the name of Yahweh. God, Yahweh, called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out. Now look at what God says. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So he states his name. He states his covenant name with the idea that he is God. And then he tells us something about Yahweh God. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he's still going to punish the guilty because he's a just God. He will punish the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We see this played out in the Old Testament. God can choose whom he wants to save. And he can let others go on and receive the justice that is due them for their sin. And Paul is bringing this now to his teaching here on election and the New Testament. Because election is God expressing his grace. Expressing, displaying his mercy on whom he will. I agree, as John Piper has excellently argued in his book on Romans 9, that Paul chose this verse because of its context with God's name and God's glory. He could have chosen many other verses to speak of these attributes. Right here, you see it closely connected with the glory of God and the covenant name of God. John Piper said, It is the glory of God and his essential nature mainly to dispense mercy on whomever he pleases, apart from any constraint originating outside of his own will. This is the essence of what it means to be God. This is his name. God is good and gracious by nature. Paul's saying, of course God cannot be unrighteous. Don't you know? Don't you know what he said to Moses? Don't you know how he talked about his glory and his name and his nature? 
He could never be unjust. He's not unjust to show mercy to some and let others pass. God electing Jacob and rejecting Esau is not unjust. It's completely consistent with who God is. Not just that he's done it in the past and will do it again, but it's consistent with the very nature of God. He's a God of complete sovereignty and freedom to choose whomever he wants. See, we want to take away God's freedom. Oh, no, you can't choose that person. They're a real bad sinner. You need to choose this better sinner over here. No, God, what about God's freedom to choose who he sovereignly chooses? We talk a lot about man's free will. Philosophers write all kinds of things about man's free will. How many philosophical tomes have you read about God's free will? You only find that in the Bible. God's sovereignty, God's freedom to do as he pleases. If God chooses some to save out of the mass of humanity, the mass of humanity that's on their way to hell, that's consistent with his good and perfect nature. That's consistent with his nature. It doesn't go against God's nature. It's consistent. It's the standard. God is the standard of all righteousness, not us. We don't get to decide what's fair and what's not fair. God does. So Exodus thirty-three nineteen it shows us God's freedom to have mercy on whomsoever he chooses. Let's go to Matthew 20. And I can already tell we're not going to get to the second part today. Matthew 20. This is what Jesus taught in a parable of the laborers. Matthew 20, 1 through 16. This is nothing new. Paul is not teaching something different than Moses and God taught in the account in Exodus. He's consistent with Jesus. He's consistent with what occurred in Exodus and what God said. So Matthew 20, because Jesus taught on election and, and Jesus is often receives pushback from people that didn't like it. But here's what he says in 20 verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those, he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. And he did the same thing. So he's going to the place you go to get day laborers in town. And he's hiring people every few hours throughout the day. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? So it's near the end of the day here. And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came and each one received the denarius, and when those hired first came, the ones hired first came, they supposed that they would receive more. So even though he said, I'll give you one denarius, they saw the people who were hired really late in the day receiving one coin, and they thought, oh, we're going to get more than that. Now, when they, each of them, though, received a denarius, verse 10, and when they received it, they were grumbling at the landowner. That's not fair. That's not fair. You hired these guys late in the day, and you hired us at the very beginning of the day, and you paid us the same. That's not fair. They were grumbling at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go 
But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Now look at verse 15. Here it is. Is it not lawful? It's another way of saying, is it not right? Is it not just? Is it not righteous? Is it not lawful for me, the owner of the vineyard, to do what I wish with what is my own? It's his vineyard. He can decide to pay them exactly what he told them he would pay them, which is what he did. That's fair. That's just. Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? Did they just want more? Because he's being generous to them, right? They want more. So the last shall be first and the first last. Look, Jesus says the vineyard owner can do as he pleases. Paul says God can do as he pleases with his vineyard, with his creation. Because he is good. He is merciful. He is right. He is just. Here's how Jonathan Edwards said it. He said, God is under no constraints from any source, under no obligation to confirm to another's will. And without any obligation to anyone for anything. That's what it means that God is independent. God's aseity. He doesn't wait around to see what you're going to do. He's not learning something today. He's not just learning that, oh, wow, they're going to go to church today. No, he knows. He decreed it all would happen. Edwards goes on. He says, God can either bestow salvation on any of the children of men or refuse it without any prejudice to the glory of any of his attributes. Let's go back to Romans 9 here. So how does Paul apply Exodus 33, 19? So then, that's his application. When he says, so then, he's applying, he's making a point of what he just stated. So then, it, what is it? A lot of people debate on what it is. It is what he just talked about. God's mercy, God's saving mercy, God's mercy in choosing to save some. It does not depend on the one who wills. Now, people look for free will in the Bible. There's a free will offering in the Old Testament. And then here's a mention of free will. It does not depend on how much you desire it. That's what will means here. How much you purpose it, how ready you are for something. It's not about human choice. Now we know, we know the gospel calls us to have faith and repent. So don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here and think, oh, there's no obligation on us. God will do it all. No, no. We are called to have faith. That is an action of the will. But who moves first? It's God. That's the point here. Paul could say, you know what? It's not the one who wills, but if it's your faith, I'll go ahead and insert that. No, even our faith is given by God. Even our faith is given by God. When he regenerates us, we can have faith. So ultimately, he's saying it does not depend on the person, but on God who grants mercy. And then he says, Or the one who runs. So there's willing. That's the desire. That's the purpose to do something. And then the execution of that would be like running. You think about running. You think, I'm going to run from here to the end of that field. And then you do it. That's the execution of it. And he says it doesn't depend on that either. He's pointing to the athletics and the Olympic Games. And one of those is running. And he says it, it doesn't depend on how much you exert yourself to the limit of your power You cannot earn God's election through something you do. doesn't matter how good you try to be. All your achievements, all your good works, it does nothing to change God's mind and force him into choosing you for salvation. 
You can't force God to choose you. But who does it depend on? It's not your will. It's not the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. Salvation is all of God is what Paul is saying. Sola gratia. Sometimes people say, I love the five solas. And then they come to something like this and they don't like it as much. Sola gratia means by God's grace alone. You know what alone means? It's alone. There's nothing else. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. That's what Jonah said in the belly of the great fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. John MacArthur said, It's not man's choice or pursuit, but God who initiates mercy for the sinner. Salvation is never initiated by human choice or merited by zealous human effort. It always begins in God's sovereign, gracious, and eternal will. Those who receive God's mercy receive it solely by His grace. It's not based on us. It's based on God. Now, I'll show you the second point, but we're going to open it up next week. Number two, the reason that it will never be that God would be unjust in choosing some over the other is because God's justice is a perfection of God and brings him glory. That's in 17 and 18. So first, he dealt with God's mercy. That's God choosing to save some. And then in 17 and 18, he's going to talk about God's justice, bringing justice to the sinner. But we'll save that for next time. What I want you to leave with today is to understand that God has a sovereign freedom to choose out of all humanity those that he would save and those that he would pass over. Here's how the 1689 London Baptist Confession says, by the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's already talked about that. It's through Jesus Christ. It's, it's not as if God is somehow working outside of Christ here. It's through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. And then the confession goes on to say, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious grace. What we're going to see here in the rest of this passage, and then when we get to 19 through 20, is it's God's glory that's on display. Whether he chooses to save one and have mercy on them, or he chooses to pass over and let somebody continue in their sin, both glorify God, just in different senses. So to the unbeliever here today, maybe you're hearing this and you're saying, this is some crazy kind of talk that's going on here. Is this one of those churches that is talking about election? Yes, because it's in the Bible. But if you're not having faith in Christ, if you're not saved, This isn't really a discussion for unbelievers. You can hear it. You can try to take it in. You're never going to fully submit to it until you've been given a new heart. As J.C. Ryle said, a man must first go to the little grammar school of repentance and faith before he enters the great university of election and predestination. So to the unbeliever, you need to turn to Christ. You need to come to Christ. There's no use sitting there saying, am I elect or am I reprobate? No, the Bible says the unbeliever is called to come. And when you come, and when you have faith, and when you turn from your sins to Christ, and faith alone, and Christ alone, then you know that you're elect. There's no other way to know. God doesn't tell you by some kind of audible voice. He doesn't zap you with an election ray, put a mark on your forehead that says you're elect. You know it because you have faith, and the Spirit is in you, and you're in Christ, 
And now you can go to the University of Election and Predestination, as Rao says. So if you're not in Christ, turn to him. Let's ask God's blessing on his word here and that we would accept it, believe it, and live our life accordingly. Oh Lord, we do come before you this morning as your people. We know that this might be hard teaching for some and many of us push back against this. We wonder if you might be unfair, but we're certain from the scriptures here, Lord, and we know who you are, that you're completely righteous, that you're merciful, that you're just, that you are gracious. Without your grace, we could never be saved. There's no other way, Lord, for us to come before your throne except through Christ. And there's no other way that we would unless you changed our heart. And you wouldn't change our heart unless you decided to do so from eternity past. So we thank you. We praise you. We humble ourselves in the dust as we look up to you, Lord. As we bow before you, as we thank you for your mercy, for your compassion, for your grace. We love you, Lord. Help us to accept this doctrine, to believe it. And that it would inspire us to be humbled and live according to the calling with which we've been called. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.